Hello everyone and welcome to episode 2 of season 3 of Ignite the Flame Audio. So glad you can join us. If you're new here, welcome. This of course is season 3, but it's a little bit different in the sense that the book that's being read to you during the course of this season, it has nothing to do with the two prior seasons. So if you go through this season and you like what you hear, I would encourage you to go back to season 1 and 2 and check those out. I would encourage that you listen to season 1 and then season 2 because those two books are chronologically linked, whereas this book is sort of like a standalone. Basically, for those of you who are new to this audio series, what we have is a chapter that's read to you from the particular book, in this case being Abattoir Black. Then we go into a section known as The Origin of Ideas, where we discuss the inspirations behind the chapter itself. And then we go into the tips of the trade, which gives, as it says, tips of the trade to... Those of you who are aspiring to be authors or those of you who are already authors just looking for that little bit extra. Of course, this particular season comes with a disclaimer. I would advise that if you are at the age of 12 or below that age, I would advise you very strongly not to listen to this particular season because it does contain graphic descriptions all the way through that I don't feel are age appropriate for anyone who is 12 or below. And for those of you who are mature listeners over the age of 12 if you are in the vicinity or if you have someone nearby that is of that age or below that age i would encourage you very strongly to pop in your earphones or make sure that they're out of earshot just because i don't want to give people nightmares and i think that the graphic content within this particular season is not age appropriate for those particular people so i'm just encouraging you to do the responsible thing and just make sure that they're not in earshot of what's being heard Or just make sure that it's privatized in the sense that you pop your headphones in and make sure that they're not exposed to it. Okay, without any further ado, let's go ahead and get into it. I'm Wayne Telford, and I'll see you on the other side. Welcome to Ignite the Flame Audio, where our hope is to bring people together one word at a time. Follow me, Wayne Telford, into the depths of your imagination. Abattoir Black, Chapter 2, Foot and Mouth The silo had been used as a larder, but not for grain, but as Jack the Ripper's store. Harvesting the human organs and decapitated parts was perhaps intended for continued similar use. They surrounded his feet and surrounded his waist, with its initial flow drenching him in blood and entrails. Officer Raymond vomited everywhere at the horror of it all, and he struggled to bring himself back to reality, which lay just metres from him, quenching the arid ground of its ten-year-long thirst. Oh, dear God, what is the reasoning behind this? I just... My God! He rotates and spins around, uncontrollably. He was falling under the spell of dizziness, and further immersing himself into this plague of Egypt. As the water ran red and tainted everything in its path, he struggled to pick himself up from the mutilation surrounding him, and walked toward the outer fence. He was covered in blood, which was turning his crisp white shirt to a pale crimson, and leaving the stench of death on his collar. Flailing his arms, he attempted to shrug off the remains, only to further smear them across his clothing, as it was refusing to relinquish its hold upon him. Get off! (laughs) Get off me! shouted Officer Raymond, as he pulled at the severed organs now encircling his neck, and cast them aside, 
vomiting upon their sight and the stench. Officer, are you all right? Somebody asked. Oh my God, what is that? The families all scattered around him. They pulled him to his feet, standing in shock as disturbed looks gripped their being. Each one gazed upon the sight of human carcasses scattered as far as the eye could see, whilst covering their mouths in disbelief at the sheer atrocity of it all. Oh my God, what is... How could this happen, officer? Andrew Ottoman gasped, while trying to find breath in his lungs without vomiting on himself. This is a huge quantity of murders, Mr. Otterman, said Officer Raymond. I have just found enough cause to reopen this case with all of your help. You see, not one of you is leaving until I get to the bottom of this. Firstly, how did this even happen? Secondly, who could have done this? And thirdly, why would someone do this? Officer Raymond asks, as though expecting clear-cut answers from the disoriented group. You think that any one of us could have done this? My dear officer, how could any one of us do this? You would need to be the sickest person on this earth to bear witness to this and not be faced, Jim Temsbury declared, stating what Officer Raymond was already aware of. None of you are above suspicion, and when I find out who did this, justice will be served. Mark my words, Raymond warned. Well, just don't be surprised if none of us are left on your list, Mildred snarled. What is that supposed to mean, Mrs. Morrison? Raymond asked. You examine those bodies, and I will wager on your odds of finding any incriminating evidence to be second to none, Mildred retorted. We will see. Until then, all of you, get into the barn. We're going to have a little talk about this godforsaken farmland. Officer Raymond withdrew his sidearm and ushered them through the waste towards the open doors of the barn. Now, let's start at the beginning. Where were you all on the night in question ten years ago? One at a time. As each person gave their alibi, it became abundantly clear that no help would be offered to Officer Raymond from any of these residents. Maybe further afield it would be. All right. You are all free to leave. But know that I will be investigating every last one of you. So don't get any ideas of leaving any time soon, all right? Raymond demanded. Understood, officer. They all answered, as though a class would, to a teacher with compliant acceptance of this new officer, but showing some deviance which had never been seen before in Wraith's Creek, since... never mind. Officer Raymond hastened back to the scene of the crime, and attempted to gather the rotting bodies together, by arranging them into rows for identification, but alas, they had decomposed beyond recognition, and most were missing their clothing. Those who weren't only possessed shreds. This infuriated Officer Raymond to the point of cursing aloud and raising his fists to the sky, before flinging them into the bloody waters below. After dragging the corpses out of the silo, Officer Raymond went about ascertaining fingerprints, dusting and proofing, to try and salvage any information which could possibly lead him to the killer, who, in this case, had eluded the authorities for many a year. 
Raymond was well aware that he was dealing with a devious mind, far more evasive than any he had previously encountered. But this was not the last of his efforts, and he was reluctant to accept defeat, a quality which would prove its worth some day. But for now, it was considered a nuisance by the surrounding residents. Several hours had passed and no clues were found, much to Officer Raymond's dismay. Placing his head in his hands, he wept and shouted at the ground as if to coax an answer from it. No prints, no markings except those which appear to be animal hooves of some sort. All completely useless. No evidence at all. Frustrated, Officer Raymond walked away and pondered to himself, turning back every few meters as though awaiting some revelation. But it did not come, only disappointment. But little did Officer Raymond realize he was about to unravel a mystery which had baffled the authorities of Wraith's Creek, not for more than ten years, but for hundreds. Wait. That's it. I will need to find an officer who is acquainted with this case and can recall a lot more than the residents can. With all these bodies, I need a coroner and soon, or else all will truly be lost. As Officer Raymond searched for a telephone, he stared at the ground and counted twelve individuals. They were piled in a pagan, altar-like state, with a further ten individuals in the silo. They accounted for twenty-two people, slaughtered by the hands of this unknown killer. Upon entering the homestead toward Farmland's top right corner, he proceeded to telephone Scotland Yard immediately. Yes? Get me Chief Inspector Miles. I, I don't care if he is busy. This is an emergency. Yes. Sir, I have twenty-two here, all awaiting identification with witnesses all with alibis, and no answers. I need assistance. Yes, sir, I understand. Very good. Then permission to conduct my own investigation. Thank you, sir. I will report in time. As he pulled his hand away and lowered his arm to his side, he dropped the receiver to gravity's mercy. Well, looks like I'm on my own, as always. Very well. I will find the truth, even if no one else wishes it to be unearthed. He said aloud, storming toward the piles of bodily remains and thrashing the clouds of flies away from the body parts, where they had feasted on the putrefying flesh and laid eggs on their still-preserved skins, in the hopes of passing life on, even from the death of others, an ironic truth. I think that whoever did this knew what they were doing, as all the markings are expertly placed over where a wound could be, a killer blow. But why the need to change the mark? unless it was the method that the animals had used to cover the wounds. Perhaps the victims were killed and then placed in the paddock, along with the animals. They were then startled by the presence of a body and trampled on it by mistake. Or perhaps not. No. Not accidental, surely. This many cases? It couldn't be coincidence. Could it? As Officer Raymond struggled to comprehend the truth of the deaths, he hypothesized all manner of workable scenarios, even journeying into fictional reasoning and contemplating the plausibility of animals being trained to trample bodies. A likely tale, he thought. With the case stumping him and all the evidence evading his analysis, Officer Raymond could do nothing but return to the barn and start again, where he had first begun, the lever. It was the only means of killing someone, and had a potential for yielding any kind of trail. As Samson returned from his journey, he said, Sir, are you all right? Sorry I ran away like that. 
I thought that I would go and get help for you, seeing as you were up here all by yourself, Samson declared, as though to explain his actions for retreating earlier. It's just as well that you did, young Master Samson, Raymond declared. How do you mean? Samson asked. Well, suffice to say, I had an out-of-body experience. Raymond remarked. Oh my, what's that smell? Samson asked. Avert your eyes, Samson, for I fear that this will haunt your memory for many years to come. Raymond warned. No, let me see, sir. That looks like the Goodison family. The Hinks family. Old Roger, the butcher, and these three? I've never seen them before. Samson identified some of the remains. Well, these appear to be the most decomposed individuals. How can you tell who these people are? Raymond asked. I knew most of them. I grew up with a lot of them. But every one of them was supposed to have left Wraith's Creek years ago. What are they doing here? Samson questions. I don't know, Samson. But I'm going to find out. You say that these three are unrecognizable? Raymond asks. Yeah. And no one else comes to mind who left. Everyone else is still here. But none of them come from anywhere near this place. Samson replied. How long has this farmland been abandoned and animal-free? Inquired Raymond. Well, all my life. But it's supposed to have been empty of animals for hundreds of years. That couldn't be right. I mean, why not just rebuild on it? Houses or a new road, perhaps? Samson replied. Maybe they tried, but this murderer has prevented them from doing so. Raymond replied. I doubt that. He has been around for hundreds of years. Samson observed. I see your point, Samson. And what makes you automatically think it's a male? Raymond asked. Well, a woman could not equally well conceive a notion such as this. Surely? Samson replied. Preserving the purity of the fairer sex, I see. Fair? But let us not discredit it. Based on gender alone, shall we? Let's gather the evidence and see what information it yields. Raymond suggests. Very well, sir. Did the lever yield anything? He asked, pointing at it, with an outstretched arm, and his eyes wide open with expectancy. No, nothing of worth apart from the trail found earlier. Raymond answered. What about the silo? Samson asked. No use following that trail. It has long since poured out as irrigation for the land. Raymond recalls. No, sir, I mean the hatch. Were there any markings on the hatch? My dear boy, I think you may be onto something there. Excellent work, Raymond replies. As they move toward the hatch, wide open with interior dripping still with iron-rich fluid, no telling as to where it originated. Blood or rust. Let's see here. Officer Raymond begins the laborious task of dusting for fingerprints. Young Samson observes, keen to pick up on his talents along the way, in the hopes of aspiring to bring law to this town, or perhaps to become a shepherd to this lost and weary flock. Suddenly, something catches Samson's attention. Did you hear that? He asked. Hear what? Raymond replies. I heard something, Samson confirms. He moves cautiously into a hut-like structure filled with tools and cutting equipment used during times of harvest. Blades of all shapes and sizes hung from the ceiling, tapping his shoulder as he passed, somewhat startling him with each brush. He continues to move into the back of the hut, 
and like a moth drawn to a flame, young Samson continues to follow the sound, with no thought whatsoever towards the outcome. He creeps slowly toward the source of the sound, a scurrying and a gnawing sound, as if devouring wood. But what was doing that? Samson could only wonder. Clang went one of the blades, as it fell from its place of rest and frightened Samson, so much so that he fell backwards, out of the door, into a seated position, favouring his lower lumbar region as he bashes his coccyx on the harsh, unforgiving floor. Regaining his upright position, a hand grabs his shoulder, just about making him leap from his skin. Samson turns to face his unknown assailant, only to find Officer Raymond checking on his position. Samson, what are you doing? This is no place for a young man. Come out, and don't go running off like that again. You are well aware of how this place makes me feel, Raymond says. <sighs> Likewise, sir. Samson agrees, as he and Officer Raymond leave the hut. The light ebbs in and shines upon a nest of rats, feasting on a partially devoured human, with only the arm remaining, covered in flesh, but enough to be identified, showing their blatant disregard, for they only saw what they wished to see in farmland. Officer Raymond and Samson continued in a feeble attempt to solve the mass murders that had eluded mankind for centuries, both knowing that it was only they who might reveal the truth, but they had not done enough to do so just yet. Samson, what were you looking for in there? Raymond asked. I thought I'd heard something is all. Samson explained. And did you find anything? Raymond asked. No, sir. Just a load of tools and some board, propped up against the walls despite the structure falling apart. Samson described what he had seen. I see. Nothing else becoming clear to you, such as the possible murder weapons? Raymond asked. All were rusted beyond any fingerprints, sir, and no trace of blood on the blades. Samson reported. Did you observe the handles, Samson? Raymond asked. No, sir. Do you think it would be possible to extract fingerprints? Samson asked. Skeptically. Well, let's examine the shutter door first. You would run off when I was in the middle of the extraction procedure. Raymond complained. Sorry, sir. I was simply trying to help. Samson defended himself. I know, Samson. You meant no harm, and I appreciate your assistance. I simply require some local authority aid, is all. I have little jurisdiction in this area, and I'm struggling to get cooperation. Raymond revealed. Well, sir, you have the alibis and the evidence to conduct a thorough investigation. So why not act upon it? Samson asked. Act upon it? How so? Raymond asked. Tell them that you've found the culprit, and that you will be making an arrest tonight. Unless someone comes forward, tell them to meet you in the barn to discuss the information that they have. You will be closer to closing the case. No one need know all the minor details, suggested Samson, deviously. You might make a fine detective one day, young Samson, although it seems rather devious, Raymond commented. What's the point of serving a master who can't work for you once in a while? Simply invoke the law against these people and they will come as sheep to a shepherd, Samson explained. Right, well then, I'd better go and spread the word, Raymond agreed. Indeed, sir, Samson said, and he takes off in a southerly direction, scattering and waving as he goes, as though to hoard insects away from his path. However, this time Officer Raymond had a nervous look about his person, and he confessed to himself, 
Every time I am pointed in a direction by young Samson, he runs away as if he fears what I might find. What is he hiding? Deception began to crawl amongst the ranks, and paranoia set in, to break what little trust existed between folk. Officer Raymond gathered his thoughts, and began to revisit the alibis he had been given first, by each of the townspeople, and began to decipher them, one by one. Right, so Eustace and Mildred Morrison were in town buying groceries on the day in question with their son Tucker in tow. They visited a floral store before heading to the local market, which was serving pig's trotters at the time. Then they proceeded to the bank to pay some household bills and returned home, in which case I will need to pay a visit to each in turn to confirm their alibi. Pausing for thought, he raised his arm, touching the back of his skull in an attempt to ease the pressure. Jim and Moira Thamesbury were both at the county fair, which is held every second Tuesday of the month, and were out of town in attendance. So that will take some confirmation using limited time. Time better spent solving this case. Whilst writing notes in his pad, he chewed the end of his pencil in the hope to ascertain further inspiration from this case, soon to turn cold. Then there is Clive and Andrew Otterman, who had worked a day at the local sawmill, returning home by six that evening, and their homes prepared by Daphne and Billy throughout the day, confirming one another's alibi, which means the only one left unaccounted for is young Samson. I will pursue these leads and deal with them in turn, but first, let's see what the shutter's doors have yielded. As he removes the paper from the lock, the inkling of a fingerprint is revealed, sending Officer Raymond into a whirling frenzy, dancing and rejoicing. Fate had yielded its reward, and now he was one step closer to solving this pervasive mystery. Or was he? Like a river, this case continued in several directions, each one branching off further into tributaries, and then further still. It became clear that Officer Raymond would require outside help, but remembering his earlier conversation with Chief Inspector Miles, it appeared help was far from coming. As Officer Raymond began to walk back to the car, a silence filled the air. This time not even the wind carried sound, as though frozen in time with a glass bubble surrounding him. Hello? This is Officer Raymond, here requesting immediate aid from anyone associated with the Reigns case. I'm en route to town, and will be with you shortly. Estimated time of arrival is ten minutes, give or take. Speak to you soon. As he awaits a response, he falls into a doze, exhausted by the day's extreme events, only to awaken as his head hits the car window with an almighty thud. Officer, we await your arrival in town, and be sure to drop by, and to inform us of your intentions. We will be most happy to help. Speak soon. Good day. A voice replied. With a look of joy upon his face, Officer Raymond starts his car and proceeds down the hillside, bound for town and the possibility of outside help. This case had been mistaken for a small-town murder, when in fact it was a city-wide epidemic. All the while he was pondering the spread of disease, the lack of value for life, and the sheer ferocity of each murder committed by an individual, truly messed up in the mind. But now came the prospect of multiple killers, perhaps a pagan cult or ritualistic creed. As his thoughts blackened toward the townspeople, Officer Raymond began to wonder whether every one of them might have played a crucial role in the proceedings, a notion far surpassing that of a disorganized criminal but rather looking like collective insanity, birthed here for centuries, practicing uninterrupted until now. Perhaps this was the reason why the authorities would not help at first. Holding up 
contact until this point. Perhaps they were all involved. A city-wide cover story. But as Officer Raymond comes back to reality, he reassures himself of one irrefutable truth. One of them was careless, and that is as good a place as any to begin. Speeding down the gravel-lined roads, his vehicle's tires maintained a sturdy grip upon its surface, clinging on for dear life as he turns the corners and the sharp bends, tempting death at each pass. Finally, he arrived in town, a desolate area with little more than a general store, a bank, a market square, and a local inn, reminiscent of old western civilization and no more modern than a coal mine. The road was half buried in arid soil and with a few scattered areas of trees breaking up the thirsty landscape. The station house lay toward the ends of the road, standing ill-used with its sign almost falling to the ground below. As the car ceased to yield further distance, Officer Raymond stepped out onto the scolding ground, with his boots simmering upon contact. Standing tall, he begins his journey into the station house with only his badge and hat as his authority. Hello there, officer. Officer Chaplin, at your service. Reaching across to shake Raymond's hand, the officer maintained a solid demeanor, refusing to show any sign of trust toward this new stranger. I must say, you look a little worse for wear there, officer. Are you injured at all? Chaplin asked. Don't play games with me, Officer Chaplin. Several people have been reported missing up at Wraith's Creek, and I just found them all, Raymond stated. My God. Then you know of the place, officer, and why we didn't want you anywhere near here, Chaplin confirmed. My chief inspector told me you would refuse all outside help. What were you hoping for, the murderer to die of natural causes? Raymond joked. Well, Officer Raymond, you see, that's just it. We didn't find any evidence leading to the murderer. No fingerprints, tracks, or even a murder weapon. At least, not enough to stand up in a court of law. Chaplin admitted. Well, I may be able to help with that, Officer Chaplin, as I have fingerprints, a murder weapon, and tracks. One of them must have been a little careless. Raymond divulges. One. You believe that there may be more killers. That's all we need. Chaplin murmured. I don't know for sure, but what I do know is that I can't work this case alone. I need your help. Now, whether you want me to or not, I'm solving this case once and for all. I owe it to my old man and to myself to see this through. Now, you can either help me or stay the heck out of my way. Your choice, Raymond warned. Well, in that case, Officer Raymond, I'm obliged to help, as, like you, I have a long score to settle with this case. It has eluded me for ten years. Nothing gets under your skin more than unfinished business. Why, even the dead are supposed to rise as a result. Is that not right? Chaplin asked. Oh, the dead have risen, Officer Chaplin, on farmland's grounds, and I intend to find out why. Raymond stated. Well then, you had better lead the way, as you clearly have the jurisdiction. Not, I thought. So, so sit down, shut your mouth, and know your place. In this town, I call the shots. Someone yelling bloody murder is bad for this town. So from now on, you don't speak, you don't blink, you don't even talk without my say-so. Understood? Begrudgingly, Officer Raymond nods his head and replied, 
Understood. Good. Now then, you say you discovered several bodies up at Wraith's Creek. How many exactly? Chaplin queried. Twenty-two. But there could easily be more. Raymond replied. Well, my constable here and I have scoured those grounds for several years, and we have not found anything. So how then do you come along and stumble upon them? Chaplin demanded. Did you ever check the silo? Raymond said, patronizingly. I didn't need to. The thing was welded shut. Chaplin responded. Well, it isn't any more. Raymond replied, impatiently. Now I have heard enough. Unless you have actual evidence leading to this case, this meeting is over. Chaplin responded. Fine, you want proof? I will show you. Raymond replied. Very well, Officer Raymond, but if you are wasting our time, you'll be hearing from your superiors. Mark my words. After that threat, Officer Chaplin and his constable saddle up their horses and leave, riding across country, bound for farmland. As they had done several years before, Officer Raymond got into his car and followed. He was astonished by their lack of belief, as he tried to comprehend their reluctance. Were they scared of farmland? Or were they trying to hide something else? He could only hope that they find the bodies and could then justify his accusations. Upon their arrival at farmland, Officer Raymond realized suddenly that something was not right, as both Officer Chaplin and the constable had yet to dismount. Officer Raymond left his car and he stumbled towards them. Their heads were shaking in disappointment, tut-tutting as he approached. Well, officer... Where are they exactly? Chaplin asked. Now standing outside the silo with the shutters closed and no trace of any blood or corpses to be found, had someone removed them? If so, who? All these questions raising their ugly heads and with few answers to go around. Officer Chaplin, I, I swear to you, there was a river of blood knee-deep in human entrails as far as the eye could see just, just moments ago. Officer Raymond defended himself. He scraped the ground frantically, in an attempt to resurrect the scene, but as the officer and constable make eye contact, it becomes abundantly clear that luck was not on Raymond's side. He had been outsmarted, but it did confirm one truth. They were trying to hide something, and Officer Raymond was determined to find out what. I just... I can't... They were... You have to believe me. You do believe me, don't you? Raymond asked, desperate. Just like the others... Officer Raymond, you came here to disturb the peace and to cause disarray with your wolf in sheep's clothing, giving us local police a bad reputation. Now, as you're new here, we will let you off this time. But if this happens again, we will not be so generous. Now leave the real cases to us and return to your own city. This is no place for a London officer. Or did you not learn that the first time? Sneered Officer Chaplin. They both rode off into the woodlands. The two of them disappeared, leaving Officer Raymond to fall to his knees. Closing his eyes, he screamed at the sky, trying to understand what had happened. Soon after that, he composed himself, and rose once more, confessing, Fine, if that is the way it has to be. Looks like I'm on my own. Just you and me. Farmland an observation which would surely come back to haunt him. 
and welcome to the Origin of Ideas section of this podcast. Basically, this is the section of the podcast where we break down the chapter that's just been read to you and go into the influences and the inspirations that brought those points about. So getting started off, during the course of this chapter, we're introduced to the conflict between the officer and the residents of Wraith's Creek. Now, this helps to build not only confrontation between the characters, but it creates this further feeling of hostility between characters, and it's a good way to further isolate, in this case, Officer Raymond as your protagonist, basically creating this sense that he's tackling this entire situation alone, not just in the sense of the case, but every time he tries to reach out and rely on the people from Wraith's Creek, they're sort of shying away from the prospect. They don't want to help him because he's a stranger, because he's a new officer, and it just helps to create this further feeling or this further sense of isolation. It helps to isolate your main character, that little bit more. The second point are the contained references to barbarism. Now, we see throughout these past couple of chapters that there's been phrases referring to pagan iconography. So the bodies have been stacked like a pagan altar, or they've been amassed as they were back in times that were less civilized or considered less civilized. This is basically just portraying that sort of barbaric iconography that most people associate with a time that's uncivilized. What we're trying to create during the course of this novel is the fact that the person who's responsible for the murders of these various people, it's done in such an uncivilized manner to try and portray the fact that death itself or murder itself is considered like an uncivilized form of behavior. It's sort of tapping into the uncivilized mind. This draws from inspiration taken from Of Mice and Men, written by John Steinbeck, because he used the same sort of animal-like phrases. He describes, when he describes Lenny, he uses phrases like bear-like paws, or he was a tall bear-like man. And it's using animal phrases to build sort of like a, a primitive view of a character. It's sort of drawing this parallel between human beings and animals, and we pretty much try to do a similar thing during the course of this novel and the course of this chapter in particular in trying to refer to the act of murder as back to a more uncivilized root ingrained within us as human beings. The third point is we see throughout this chapter the building of suspense to the point of terror. This is emphasized in the part where Samson hears something and he goes off into this little shed-like structure and there's loads of tools that are used for harvest. So things like scythes and sort of like cutting materials that you would use for, for harvesting crops. And they're all sort of dangling from the ceiling. And as he's sort of moving through this shed-like structure, he taps one with his shoulder and it falls off. It knocks off its perch and it hits the ground with a, with a huge clang and it scares him enough that he falls backwards, and then as he's sort of composing himself, there's a hand that grabs his shoulder. Now, this is sort of what's known as the double play, and the main source of inspiration this comes from is Jeepers Creepers. There's a moment in Jeepers Creepers where they're sort of running from the field to try and get to the school bus. For those of you who don't know, it's basically a horror film based on a scarecrow, but the scarecrow is like this entity this ancient entity that comes to life every i think it's like 19 years or something and it feeds on basically the townspeople basically they think they're being pursued 
and they're running through this field. They come through the field and there's this flock of pigeons that flies up. Now, you think that's the jump scare? So you might jump at that and you might think, okay, it sort of lulls you into a false sense of security because you think, okay, the jump scare's already happened. But what happens is as soon as the pigeons fly off and there's the sudden jolt in the music to create that sense of a scare, as soon as the characters calm down, the character known as Jeepers Creepers then snatches one of the kids that are seeking to get onto the school bus and flies off. And that's like a second jump scare before you even have chance to sort of calm down. And that's what's known as a double play. And we sort of do the same here in creating the shock factor with obviously the initial scare being Samson knocking one of the tools off, which causes him to then fall backwards. But the second or the double play is then the hand comes onto the shoulder of Samson, which he then turns around and realises it's just Officer Raymond. But it's a good way to use suspense to instill terror within your readers. And it's definitely a good tool to use, especially if you're writing more toward the horror side as opposed to thriller. You can use it in thriller as well, but it's definitely something you should use if you're writing more toward the horror side. The fourth point is that we see the use of thoughts within the characters to further illustrate story points. So later on in this chapter, we are introduced to the thoughts of Officer Raymond, like as he goes over the alibis which he's been told by the characters, which wasn't illuminated previous. And it's a different way. It's one of the advantages of writing in third person because it allows you as the narrator to have this sort of omnipotent presence so you can sort of tell the thoughts of the character to further illustrate particular points that you wish to raise awareness to. And it just helps to tell the story through those points and to tell what the character is thinking, but it also helps you to sort of add to the themes that are already being created. So for instance, throughout the first two chapters, there's this sense that there's sort of a distrust between Officer Raymond and the residents of Wraith's Creek and vice versa. And this is added to when we go into Officer Raymond's thoughts towards Samson, like every time he points me in a certain direction, he runs off almost like he's afraid of what I'll find. So it's continuing to add to this distrust without using dialogue, like direct interaction between the characters. And it's one of those advantages that you can use when you're writing in third person because you can tell the thoughts of the characters. So it's sort of hidden from the characters in the particular novel, but it's not hidden to the reader. So it almost gives them like an extra insight. The final point is we're introduced to yet more conflict, but this time it's between the local and regional police forces, like a jurisdictional constraint, where Officer Raymond goes to get help from Officer Chaplin. And because Officer Chaplin is a local policeman and they run the risk of having their pride bruised because of this case being reopened and solved by someone who doesn't necessarily have jurisdiction, it sort of infringes upon the authority that the local police force have. And so in response, there's this conflict that we see between the two characters when Officer Chaplin basically tells Officer Raymond to know his place. I'm in charge here. This is my town. And we see this on a lot of occasions, especially in films and TV series, where the local police force feel threatened by a regional police force that are sort of coming in and commandeering what would otherwise be their case or challenging their way of solving a particular situation. 
And we see that it's a further form of conflict that you can add just to create that extra sense of drama, that extra sense of tension between characters. And it just further helps to add to this sense of isolation that Officer Raymond is trying to reach out to literally everybody in Wraith's Creek, but no one's interested. Everybody sees him as a threat. They see him as something who's alien, very different, very foreign, something they're not used to. You know, he's seen as a threat as opposed to someone who wants to help. And that just further helps to isolate this community and isolate this particular place, which is obviously a useful tool if you wish to sort of cut off your area from the rest of the world during the course of your story. Okay, that about wraps it up for this section. Let's go ahead and get into the next one. And welcome to the tips of the trade section of this podcast. Basically, this is the section of the podcast where, as it says... We give tips of the trade to those of you who are aspiring to be authors or those of you who are already authors just looking for that little bit extra. So today I thought we would expand on the tools that we touched on in the last tips of the trade section, referring to the tools used in creating suspense, specifically more toward the horror side. So getting started off, there are plenty of tools to use that build suspense and especially if you're writing more toward the horror side, there are several tools that you can use. So getting into it, There are three main topics that you want to cover if you're writing thriller or horror, and that's fear, revulsion, and terror. Now, we're going to go into each one of those individually now. So, starting off with fear, it may seem blindingly obvious that you have to have some element of fear within the works of horror or even thriller, but how can you write using fear? What what does it mean in the context of you using it within your writing? Well, we touched upon this in the last episode, by the use of the uncanny, creating this feeling that something doesn't feel quite right. Something's off, either about the characters or about the place that you're setting the story. This is one way in which you can help install that fear. Fear is about the build-up to the final scare, if you will. You know, the, the big reveal of the monster or whatever is the main antagonist of your story. Fear is a way by which you can build the suspense, build the mystique, create that unsettling feeling and there's loads of ways that you can create that effect through fear you can use the uncanny you can put your characters in a vulnerable situation so perhaps they could be in a place that's isolated a place where should they leave there's like uninhabitable conditions outside so for instance you have like an arctic research base if they leave that base obviously they'll be subject to the elements they'll probably end up dead The same as if you're on a space station. You know, if they were to leave and be out in space without protection, again, they would end up dying. So there's that way that you can use the environment. Like we mentioned before, using the uncanny, you can have something that's just a little bit off about the people or about the environment. And also you can build suspense through the use of fear by having little references to your main antagonist. So if it's a monster or if it's some type of entity, some force, you can have characters pay tribute to it, mention about it, tell stories about it to sort of build this mystique. It's sort of like fear is the thing to remember about fear is you're building up to a larger scare. Moving on then into revulsion. Revulsion is something that disgusts you. So the first thing that comes to mind with revulsion is gore. So obviously if you have graphic descriptions like we do during the course of this novel if you remember revulsion as revolting almost so it's 
something that puts you off, something that turns your stomach, something that makes you feel sick, you know, or it makes your skin crawl. So the thing to remember with that is something that's covered in warts or some huge creepy crawly that's like covered in hairs and it's got big beady eyes, you know, something that just makes your skin crawl, something that really sort of makes you feel sick to your stomach. You know, if you think about films like The Fly with Jeff Goldblum, that sort of practical effect that was used in his transformation, that's sort of what you're going for with revulsion. You're trying to describe something that makes your reader either feel sick to their stomach or it makes their skin crawl. And that's another tool that you use specifically if you're wanting to write more toward the horror side of things. But you can also use graphic descriptions. So something that makes you cringe. So for instance, the film that comes to mind for me is Crawl, which is a film all about a couple that get stranded by a hurricane and there's an alligator farm nearby. And basically they have to survive until they get rescued while there's a bunch of alligators swimming through their house. And one of the scenes, one of the guys is holding a flare and this alligator jumps up, grabs hold of his arm and it death rolls and you see everything. And I do stress everything. That in itself is revulsion because it makes you cringe. No one likes to see broken bones. No one likes to see that amount of graphic depiction in front of you. It makes you want to squint. It makes you want to turn away. That's also revulsion. And lastly, we get into terror. Now, terror is basically the culmination of all those elements. All those fear elements and all those revulsion elements are now manifested. So if I were to sum up terror, it's the thing that makes you scream. It's the thing that brings out that instant reaction. It makes you cry out. It makes you want to run away. Terror is that fear reaching its highest point. So it's the reveal of the monster, the reveal of the entity. It's that final cherry on the cake, if you will. And what you try to evoke with terror is that instant scare. So it either makes you want to jump or, like I said, it makes you scream, things like that. You know, if ever you've played a horror video game, a survival horror game like Dead Space or The Last of Us, any of the Resident Evil, or if you've watched films like Chernobyl Diaries, uh, any of the sort of classic horror movies, you'll know when terror is evoked because the score becomes much more high pitch and then all of a sudden it just drops and you don't hear anything and then all of a sudden something will crash through a window or something will break open a door or something will happen that just causes you to jump out of your skin. And that's exactly the same effect that you're going for. But as you're writing either thriller or more toward the horror genre, this is something to bear in mind. The use of all three of these tools, fear, revulsion and terror, will make for a decent thriller and an even more decent horror novel. Okay, that about sums it up for this section. And that's it for episode two. Once again, guys, thank you for joining in. Really pleased that you can take time out of your otherwise busy schedule to make us a part of it. As always, we'll endeavour to include all the links below to any of the information that's been mentioned during the course of this episode. Right now, I'm just going to take some time, as we have done over the previous seasons just to promote a particular project which we're discussing during the course of this particular season known as Taylor's Trades. It's a middleman service set up by a good friend of ours, Brandon Taylor, and you can find the links below to the Facebook page, Instagram page, etc. And basically what it is, is as I said, it's a middleman service, so like a courier service 
for anyone who's interested in buying, selling or trading goods. What Brandon offers is a middleman courier service to anyone who's wanting to buy or sell or trade any particular items. He's already delivered £400,000 worth of goods across England and he has over a thousand references, the majority of which are positive reviews. And as I said, he operates from Southampton all across the country, all across England. And this is a project he does to support the community. So if that sounds like something you're interested in, be sure to check out the links below and head on over to the Facebook, Instagram or the Twitter page that you'll find below. And be sure to pop Brandon a message and I'm sure he'd be happy to hear from you. Okay, guys, once again, thank you very much for tuning in. It really does mean the world to us. Like I say, that you tune in every episode. I hope that you've got something from this episode. I hope that it's really sort of positively contributed to your life. I hope it's given you a boost, sort of like a pick-me-up. I hope you've got something out of this episode. At least then we know we're, we're doing our job. We're doing the right thing. As always, guys, have a great day. Have an amazing week. And whatever you're planning on doing today, just go out and do your best to know that your best is always good enough. I'm Wayne Telford, and I'll see you next time.